Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. And as been our pattern, uh, we're going to read the first two verses, and then uh, verse 13, which is the Sixth Commandment. And we're reading the first two verses every time to remind us that God does not give the commands as a way to save ourselves, but because He is the Redeemer who saves, we walk in obedience. This is God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, not only are you our hiding place, a rock firmly fixed for us, we also come to you as our prophet and ask that you would teach us the word of God, but with power. Don't just shape our minds, but dig deep into our hearts and mold them so that our hands could do your will. We pray that you would draw us out of ourselves to your cross, and then by your Spirit send us forward so that we could walk in new obedience. Unless you do these things, O God, then these words will be utterly useless. So we are sure that this is your word, and that through them you will always work, And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you know this, but we collectively have a problem with anger. Read the comment section of blog posts or Facebook, and they quickly devolve, dissolve into an anger-infused discussion. Try to fix a piece of technology, get on a forum... Someone will post, how do I fix X, Y, or Z? And within three lines, people are cutting each other with their words. Watch your children play from the earliest age and often within minutes. Sharing turns into harsh words and it always escalates. It always escalates. Little disagreements between lifelong lovers can quickly turn into the most cutting words that anyone has ever said to you. School shootings seem to get diverted into political debates, but no one seems to talk about how angry the kid was in the first place. Angry enough to escalate, to take dozens of lives. Anger always escalates. It always escalates. And it started shortly after Eden was infected with sin when it entered the world between the first siblings. Jealousy jealousy turned to anger and turned to murder. It always escalates. And you see the problem is in us. You can trace it backwards. Murder starts with anger. Anger starts with being wronged, and we have all been wronged, and it always escalates, so we're angry people. 
This root, given enough space and time, will grow into the full-blown tree and flower forth murder from our hands. And it must be trimmed back because it constantly grows. Anger constantly grows. It's like kudzu. Trim it back. It'll come back with a fury. Our New Testament reading. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, does he? G.K. Chesterton wrote mystery novels amongst, prolific writer amongst the many things that he wrote, social commentaries, theology. He also wrote mystery novels. And the star of his mystery novels was a crackpot amateur detective who had an insightful way of solving murders. He was a priest, and he said, this is how I solve the murders. You see, quote, it was I who killed all of those people. He'd looked into his own heart and seen that the potential to commit any murder that he looked into was the seeds were in his heart. So he goes on, he says, no man's really any good until he knows how bad he is or not just is or might be. Right till he's realized exactly how much he has all the snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals, quote, as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. He's no good until he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of self-righteousness till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. This is in us. And our only hope to kill the murderous heart that resides in all of us is to kill the kudzu of anger with the gospel. So let's start here. If we're going to understand what's going on in the sixth commandment, and as we have said, the commands are like hyperlinks. Click on them. They'll take you to a whole plethora of behaviors, a whole world of sins. And so let's start here. If we're going to have to understand the theology, the hyperlink of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, we have to start with this. Every person is immeasurably valuable, so we need to be careful with each other. So it's commonly misunderstood that this command reads, you shall not kill. You'll you'll hear it quoted that way in, in popular media. And if you have an older translation of the Bible, like the King James Version, it will read that way, you shall not kill. But the Hebrew word, as it's translated in our translation for murder, can't simply be translated as kill. And sometimes it's said that this is a massive contradiction in the Bible. It says, the Bible says, in one place you shall not kill, and then just chapters later, it's giving descriptions on how to kill animals, and in other places, to kill people because they are under the judgment of the government. But the the Hebrew word here is much heavier than just you shall not kill. It covers a range of things like premeditated murder on one hand or what we might call first degree murder to accidentally killing someone by being careless, what we might today call manslaughter. That word that's translated murder covers that whole range of Sins. It generally carries this idea. Don't throw people away like they're worthless. 
Don't be careless towards human life because people are immeasurably valuable. Think of the old MasterCard commercials. You'll remember them. The tagline, you know, certain things are priceless and they would go through a litany of things, you know, uh, and put a price tag on them. But certain things you can't put a price tag on. And so it might be like this, you know, a dog is worth uh, $500, a cat is worth $50, a goldfish is worth $1.50, but humanity is priceless. You can't put a dollar amount on it. The reason that human life is priceless is because every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God. From the first of creation, this is what God said. Of all the animals and of all the plants and of all the rocks, this is what he said. In the image of God, he made them, male and female, he made them. Every man, woman, and child equally glorious in the sight of God. And to understand what he means by image, you have to really kind of draw yourself back into the original context that that was being spoken in. In the ancient Near East, that has royal, kingly connotations. See, it was, in the, it was common in the ancient Near East for a king to call himself the image of God and then he would create little statues and put them around his kingdom to remind the people that the that he as the king ruled that particular territory and that his was his reign and his glory was represented in those places and those little statues were referred to as images it's royalty it's a royal title And as God's images, we are to represent or be icons of his glory, or we are representative icons of his glory in all of creation. You see, the mandate that was given to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply to take, make more of God's image until his images, his royal dignity, glory was spread throughout all the earth. You know, when Iraq fell, the first thing that the people did was to tear down the image, the, the statue of Saddam Hussein. They weren't just simply destroying a statue. They understood that that statue represented the reign of that malicious ruler. They were revoking his reign on their lives. And so God, here's what God is saying. You are immensely valuable. Not because of any role that you play in this world. Not because of the strength or weakness of your pocketbook. Not because of your academic degrees or lack thereof. Not because of your infirmities or your strength. You are immeasurably glorious because inherently glorious because you have been created in the image of God and so don't treat any life like it can be discarded as worthless and this is what Jesus to understand what Jesus is saying in our New Testament reading you've got to understand this as the basic principle And so he says, look, don't say to someone, like if you're angry, you're committing murder. If you say to someone, you're nothing. The word translated is 
is better. The word behind it, and you've got a footnote in your Bible for the word is raka. Don't say to someone, you're worthless. Or don't say to someone, you fool. Both of these things are essentially saying, you're nothing. You are of no value to me. And in guilty of murder, he says, because you have discarded God's glorious image as if they were worthless to you. And he doesn't just elevate the attitudes that give rise to this, the anger that gives rise to this, to the level of murder. But he elevates the punishment because in the Old Testament, murder was a capital crime deserving of death. But he says, if you treat people in your heart and on your lips as if they are worthless, you are deserving of the hell of fire. So live your life. Treating each human life as if they were priceless. So be careful. Be careful with each other's lives. Be careful with the lives of your neighbors. Have to loop in here Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's famous quote from The Weight of Glory. He says this, It may be possible to think too much of our own potential Glory in the hereafter, right? In the age to come, in the new heavens and new earth. But it's hardly possible to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. The load of my neighbor's glory should daily be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may someday be a creature that if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as if you meet if all, it would only be in a nightmare. All day long, we are either helping, to one degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with each other. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I love that image. Like if you could see the glory that each of us inherently has because you're creating the image of God, you would be tempted to bow down and worship them. Even in our brokenness, even scarred and tainted by sin, you still have immeasurable glory. So we need to respect each other's glory by practicing what I'll call the rule of carefulness. And it works like this. Human life is so important and precious that anything that might harm or weaken it in any way must be avoided at all cost. I'll tell you, the, the rule of carefulness worked itself out like this in ancient Israel. When you built a house, you would often use the roof of your house. It would be like your patio. But if you didn't put a fence around the roof of your house and someone fell off that fence, off your roof, and died, you were responsible. There are a few things that we need to talk about when we talk about the sixth commandment, things that the sixth commandment takes seriously and outlaw. Abortion, 
suicide, euthanasia. These are outlawed. The baby in the mother's womb has its own genetic material from conception and is, as a result, a unique image bearer of God and must be protected because it has glory. If a pregnant woman, Exodus 21, 22, is struck and her baby dies, the perpetrator shall pay with his life. When it comes to the ethics of the end of life issues like euthanasia, let the rule of carefulness just create the groundwork for the discussion. Rather than letting the discussion be framed about how end of life should work and let it be framed by economics or individual rights, let it be framed by this. Be careful, that person, even in their sickness, is full of glory. We have to start bearing the weight. This is what the command. So the command always outlaws one thing and then tells us how to walk in obedience. Positively, this command is saying, look, we have to bear the weight of each other's glory. So how do you drive? You should drive like every other person on the road is of inestimable value. You can't estimate their worth. So be really careful. Don't text and drive. Those other people on the road are made in the image of God and are glorious. If maybe your eyesight is getting bad or your your reflexes aren't what they should be, maybe you should give up your driving privileges because the other people on the road have glory and need to be treated that way. You get the principle. I'm taking responsibility for the lives of the people around us because they are made in the image of God and therefore glorious. But I need to replace, in order to get there, I need to deal with the anger problem. I need to deal with the root of my anger because until I deal with that, I will always be on the verge of murder. Calvin said it this way. John Calvin, the great Genevan pastor of the 16th century, said it this way. The hand indeed commits the murder, but the mind under the influence of wrath and hatred conceives of it. The hand does, the heart is conceived of And our murderous hearts need to be killed. And the only thing powerful enough to kill those roots from our hearts is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the irony of the gospel. The only thing that can liberate murderers like us is death itself. I mean, simply put, the gospel is this. Jesus gets the death that I deserve so that by faith in him... I get the life and rewards he deserves. He bore my wrath so I could get his reward if he is my hiding place. You see, what God does, God values his own image. How much does he value his own image? How much does he value the image of his glory that has fallen into sin, wrecked itself ruined our lives he doesn't say you don't deserve my glory anymore i'm taking away it so you're no longer my image bearer he says this this is how much i value the glory that you have as my image bearers you are worthy of the price of my son god shows all of mankind in the cross just how much he values his image while the sentence of death hangs over 
every one of our heads for the way that we have treated each other. If you are one with Jesus Christ, if you are united to him and he has become your hiding place, the sentence of death has already been delivered onto the back of Jesus. There's blood on our hands. But if it's the blood of Jesus, your hands are clean. And see, the cross just gets at the root of murder. It gets after our envy, our hatred, and our anger. Those are the, really the three things that give rise to murderous hands. Those roots are in our hearts, and the gospel gets after that. Because what generates murderous thoughts is this. It's looking inward in love. Love for self instead of looking outward for love for others. And so this is what envy does. Envy creeps into our hearts and it says, I want what you have. So I'll do anything to get it, even if it means slaying you with my tongue or my hands. Hatred says, I hate that you have what I want. And instead of you having it, I'm going to demand that I have it. I'll take it from you at any cost. Anger says, look, I didn't get what I wanted, and I'm furious. I'm going to take it out on you. And the inward look says, I alone am glorious, therefore you should serve me. And when my glory is not being served, I'll kill to get it. I'll kill your reputation. I'll kill you with my tongue by calling you names. I will kill you with slanderous accusations that will take you years to dispel. And if those sins take root, I will kill you with my hands. And your murderous thoughts are murderous thoughts. These are in me. These murderous thoughts have to be put to death. And this is what God says. I will kill them with the death of my son. I mean, which one of us would let a convicted murderer dine in your house, give him a key, make him a room, and then let him run around like he owned the place? And then even place your deep loving affection on him. But that is what God, the judge of all the earth, has done for murderers through Christ. It's not just that he forgives our sin. He gives us the full loving embrace that was due his son. Is now your birthright if you've been born again into Jesus Christ. So let the love of God, let the love of God at the cross dispel your self-love so that the roots of murder are cut off at the root. Grounding ourselves in the gospel will drive us into love for others. Right, so the, the way the gospel filters out the sixth commandment for us is that you shall not murder means you ought to love one another as God has loved you in Christ. That's how he ends his next chapter on anger and his Jesus and he kind of kind of begins discussing the sixth commandment again now applying it to love for your enemies and he says look when you love your enemies this is what you your children of God because this is how the father has loved you if you're united to Jesus you are no way short on any of the resources you need to love your neighbor fully so John gets at this John got this. John writing in prison on the island of Patmos as a martyr, 
He was first the disciple. He, this was his self-identity. I'm beloved disciple. Not because Jesus necessarily loved him more, but he had just, that's his identity. Jesus loves me. So as an enemy of Rome, because of the gospel, he's put into prison. He looks this, says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And if you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, it's antithetical. It can't be the case that Jesus can dwell in us and us not cut off the root of murder. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. It's got to dispel. It's got to take one. They can't grow. The same root can't grow. You've got to cut off murder before love will ever get there. And the only way to do that is to press the gospel so deep in that it just liberates us. Secondly, we have to enter into the lives of our neighbors with the goal of bringing good to their lives. The Jesus says, look, here's the pattern. Someone strikes you on one cheek. Turn the other also. Offer them your life. This is in the ancient Near East. If someone, you kiss on both cheeks, right? So if someone strikes one cheek and I turn the other cheek, I'm offering them embrace, reconciliation, my life. I'm entering back in. If they steal, don't demand it back. Rejoice that they now have your possessions. Because created in the image of God, they deserve it. Because I've been loved by the Father, They deserve it. Bring good into their lives. So much of the Old Testament law is dedicated to justice towards the weak. Women, slaves, soldiers are to be protected. Your neighbor's value is not based on the amount in their pocketbook or their social standing or what they can do for you, but based on the fact that they are created in the image of God. And so your goal, if you belong to Jesus Christ, is to work good in them. Give justice, this is Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So the gospel just propels us. This is what God's done for me. I need to care for the weak because he's taking care of me and my weaknesses. And I need to bring good in their lives. And so Jesus says this way, look, I am so identified with the poor and weak. That when you do this to them, you're doing it to me. And if you're not doing it to them, you're not doing it to me. And you don't belong to me. To seek good of those, particularly the weak and vulnerable. Third, our tongues have to start planting flowers instead of setting fires. With our words, we can either move people in one direction or the other. To C.S. Lewis's quote, we're either helping them one way or another. Or helping them to achieve the glory that they have as the image bearer or we are burning them down. We can either tear them down or build them up. Plant flowers or set fires. Encouraging words make lives bloom in people. Words of hate burn them down. You have, each of you have Harsh words that were spoken to you at some time in your life that ring through your ears and you just can't dispel them. But also watch someone's life light up when words of encouragement are said, particularly about them. They plant flowers that bloom 
and to love for other people, actually. No matter what someone's done to you, you, they are an image bearer and are, are worthy of your words of encouragement. Fourthly, we have to take responsibility for each other, particularly of brothers and sisters, helping each other grow in Christ. Right? So this means that one of the ways that this gets played out is because you have now in Christ dual value, because you are created in God's image and that image has been restored in Jesus Christ and you are now God's son. Each of you, each of us together, have two degrees of glory. So we've got to take time to encourage and build one another up in love. Look, most of the time we notice what's going on in each other's lives. We know, we just by bare observation, their, their countenance is down. They're stuck in sin. I need to grab them out. Hebrews, Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's our responsibility for each other. Or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some all the more as you see the day of judgment drawing near we own responsibility for each other's growth in Christ because you value the image of God you want to get involved in the mess can't let them keep going down this road it's going to be messy and hard I'm going to bear their burden because God has borne my burden in Christ. And I know that in Christ, therefore, I have all the resources necessary to help them out. So obviously, the opposite of murder is forgiving love. Anne Lamont says it this way. She says, look, the opposite opposite of murder is, is forgiveness. And forgiveness means this. It's finally unimportant to hit back. And that's what the gospel does. It, it ends the escalation of cycle and rage that leads to inner murder by interjecting love from God, forgiveness from the cross. And as a result, creates a community of people who are becoming more like their Savior. The most repeated thing that is said about God in the Old Testament is this. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Quick to forgive. And instead of seeking vengeance, pours out his love on us. Praise God. Let's pray.